Welcome to Diverse, the podcast for the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog all together at altogether.swe.org. Are you taking full advantage of your SWE membership? Your membership grants you access to SWE Advanced Learning for career and life. Your membership unlocks free and discounted on-demand content 24 hours a day from around the world. The SWE Advanced Learning also has live learning. With multiple tracks, Advance offers something for every career and every stage of your career. SWE's many offerings feature subject matter experts from a wide variety of thought leaders in STEM and leadership. When you want to skill up, turn to Advance first. Access learning at advancelearning.swe.org. Hello, and welcome to Diverse, a SWE podcast. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on social media. Visit swe.org for more details. I'm Ann Perusik, Director of Editorial and Publications for the Society of Women Engineers. My co-host today is SWE archivist Troy Eller-English. This month, we are celebrating women's history. Hello. Our guest today is Linda M.S. Thomas, a SWE fellow, a recipient of SWE's Distinguished Service Award, and one of the 2016 Women Engineers You Should Know in SWE magazine. Linda is retired from Boeing Defense, Space, and Security in Seattle, where she was a Boeing Technical Fellow, a System Safety Engineer, and Chemical Risk Integration Leader. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here and appreciate this opportunity to talk with you today. I'd like to add that Linda is a native of Washington, D.C. She received her bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Howard University and a master's degree in systems architecture and engineering from the University of Southern California. Aside from her involvement in SWE, she is active with the National Society of Black Engineers and other organizations, including serving on the STEM advisory board of her local school district. Linda is also a wife and a mother with a love of music. She plays soprano and bass clarinet and has performed with various musical groups. And all these aspects of Linda's background are key to our discussion on leadership today and what it means to live a well-rounded life, to take on leadership in so many different aspects of life. So, Linda, let's start today by discussing your technical leadership. Being named an Associate Technical Fellow and then a Technical Fellow at Boeing are major accomplishments. Could you tell us about what these titles mean and the process that you went through to become one? Great. Thank you. The Boeing Technical Fellowship Program is a highly selective technical leadership career path and is similar to the IBM Fellows Program. I became a technical fellow in 2010, starting with the Associate Technical Fellow, and I took the next step to be a technical fellow in 2018. There are actually five steps in the program. I mentioned the associate technical fellow, the technical fellow, senior technical fellow, and there are two additional positions. There's a principal senior technical fellow at the senior director level, 
and a distinguished senior technical fellow at the vice president level. Now, the process, since I've gone through it twice, is pretty basic. I'm nominated by a manager and I prepare a series of applications. And those applications are based on showing my spirit, influence, and impact on five criteria, which are technical knowledge and judgment, creative problem solving and innovation, technical leadership, advising and consulting, capability as a teacher and mentor, and also sharing one's technical vision. If my written applications show strength in those areas, I'm invited to an interview with a board of my peers and supervisors. And if the results of that interview are positive, then my name is recommended for evaluation by the chief technical officer for review and approval. The process takes about six to eight months. The first time I applied for technical fellow was a very daunting process. I had dropped out once because of personal issues. The second time I had gone as far as the interview process, but I wasn't quite ready. The third time I felt that I was, I had learned lessons from my past two experiences and was highly focused on that. Once I became associate technical fellow, I also had the opportunity to be on a board to evaluate incoming candidates for associate technical fellow. Then I learned the psychology of interviewing, and that really helped me with my technical fellow application. I recall going into that interview with a high degree of confidence that I was going to make it. And I also gave myself a personal incentive if I made technical fellow. And when I made it, I took care of that little incentive. It sounds like a daunting process, not a simple process, Linda. I know that only what less than 2%, maybe 1.5% of Boeing's workforce reaches this level of leadership and that it's considered to be a group of some of the best engineering and scientific minds. So I think it's quite an accomplishment. I also wonder, because I hear from many engineers who talk about reaching a crossroads in their career where they could go down either a strictly technical path or more of a leadership management pathway. And I wonder if you ever came to a point like that, and if so, how did you make your decision? Yes, I remember when the technical fellowship program first started at Boeing, I was an early career engineer. And I felt at that time that was something I wanted to do. So when I took a mentorship program, it was called the mentor program in the late 1990s, I had exposure to both the managerial and the technical path. And I was still uncertain until I decided, you know, it's time to do some informational interviews. So I talked with managers and I talked with engineers. And I had the most impactful conversation with one of my former managers. And I recall the challenges he went through as a first level manager. He went back into engineering. So I decided to go visit him and find out what happened. We talked about personal values versus technical and engineering work and what would be best for me rather than thinking about others. After that conversation, I felt determined to go on that technical path. Now, it's not that I didn't like management. I was a SWE leader up to the board level. And that is a type of management job because you're helping people to be the best they can be. I really like being a SWE leader. And 
I felt joy in seeing people succeed. However, I recognized the challenges that I would face as a leader. I came to the conclusion that being a paid manager was not on my personal radar. Okay, thank you. So some people have a clear vision of what they want their career to look like from the beginning of their career, but other people, you know, they follow whatever interests and opportunities arise throughout their career. So for you, do you think it was a matter of staying on what you felt was an interesting technical path and then excelling in that? I felt that my career was a Venn diagram of all my engineering experiences. I first started my career in the aluminum industry, but I was laid off after about a year due to economic situations. And I eventually found a job at Boeing. And I started out as a materials engineer and specializing in corrosion protection and control. That's very important for aerospace products because they operate in all types of climates and environments. And we want to fool mother nature, but by father time. In those interactions as a materials engineer, I worked on a variety of products. I met people working in other areas, and soon I became uh, invited to work on other projects that weren't necessarily in the materials engineering area. One was I was a facilities engineer at a site, and we had to create a hazardous waste characterization project so we could properly dispose of hazardous waste for processors. And while I was doing that, I received another invitation to come back to the F-22 program where I was working the prototype to be a system safety engineer and work on a new requirement for minimizing hazardous materials in product design, which is, I would say, the precursor for the design for environment movement. And I really enjoyed that because I was a trailblazer. Not too many people were doing that at the time. So while I enjoyed that, I wanted to do some more system safety specific work like doing hazard analyses, understanding why things failed or how can I prevent failures from happening in the first place. And I became kind of a consultant. I worked on multiple projects at a time. Sometimes I would have two to three desks that I'm either walking to or driving to during the day. But that was very broad experience. And this was the type of experience that lead to being nominated for the technical fellowship. And some of the more exciting projects I had were working on the presidential airlift program, where I was working on airplanes that carry some of our nation's leaders. And I did virtually none of the chemical work that I had done in other jobs. And it was fun. When that job ended, I got this role with the chemical risk assessment, which I got to look at the entire Boeing defense and space portfolio to see how can we minimize the impacts of regulations on our product design. And I've always stood with how can I prevent things from happening in the first place through prudent design practices and operations. But the bottom line was every skill that I developed from the beginning of my career till I retired enabled me to transition to other assignments. And it was definitely fun. No, I really love the fact that you call it a Venn diagram. (laughs) That's a really great way of visualizing it and, and also seeing how every step you took in one way or another, although it wasn't clear at the time, led you on this very fascinating and I, I would think very fulfilling path. 
I remember that one time you described the thrill of seeing a plane that you worked on fly for the very first time. Can you describe this for us? Yes, that was the F-22 Advanced Tactical Fighter. I started working on the prototype in the late 1980s. And this was a competition between Boeing, Lockheed, and I think it was then General Dynamics versus McDonnell Douglas and Northrop Grumman. So we got to see these planes fly off. And it was just thrilling to say, hey, I was one of those individual contributors to this airplane. And I was working the materials engineering aspect and corrosion protection and control. And we had many fun projects associated with the design and the construction of the aircraft. Boeing and Lockheed and General Dynamics did win the down select in 1991. And that's when I returned to the program as a system safety engineer. Even today, I've had opportunities to see the F-22 in flight, and I'm just amazed at its speed and its maneuverability. When I was a bit younger, my husband bought me a flight simulator for F-22 to make sure I could continue living that dream. (laughs) That's quite the gift. I'll have to mention that the first flights we saw were actually on television, but today I've been in and out of the Hampton, Virginia area, and F-22s regularly fly out of the base, so I get to see them fairly often. So it's, it's definitely a treat to know that I've had that contribution to the technology. That's a wonderful story. It has to be very gratifying to know that you were a part of it. We're talking about your leadership, and you mentioned earlier that you were also a leader within SWE, and not just SWE. You you served on SWE, for Nesby, and then in other organizations in various capacities. So what prompted you to start volunteering for these organizations and bring your leadership skills to these other organizations? I've been actively involved in organizations since college. I was a member of SWE in college and also Nesby. I think I was either the president or vice president of the Nesby chapter at Howard University. I don't think I was a leader in the SWE section. It was just a part of helping people understand the possibilities of becoming engineers. I recognize that sometimes students don't know what engineering is. And what we did was find opportunities so people would know what lies ahead of them after graduation. When I returned as a professional with SWE, it was also making connections with people to understand what lies ahead of them in engineering, things like the differences between technical and managerial career path. Also understanding that as a professional, there are lots of things that we can do. We can still do outreach. We can help that next generation of up-and-coming engineers. And I found that the networking was also admirable. Being in the Pacific Northwest was definitely diverse on many levels. At that time, the region in the Pacific Northwest covered three time zones and a variety of industries. For example, in Alaska, you you have to think about Arctic design, especially up in the oil fields and also high desert in Montana and Idaho and parts of Washington state. So I got to see quite a bit of that as a SWE member, committee member, a section president, a region governor, and director of regions. 
And it was definitely fulfilling to meet people, many who I maintain friendships with now and learn about the types of work they're doing, which is entirely fascinating. I found that being a part of SWE opens up a wider lens to what engineering is and what women are capable of doing. It's incredibly fulfilling. And having a magazine also helps to document all these wonderful accomplishments that women have done over the years. And Nesby is very similar to SWE because also their role is to help African-American and global members understand the possibilities of engineering. I've been involved with their special interest group called Aerospace Systems. And one of our SWE members, Inanga Fale, is the leader of that group. And I've been a part of that for a few years, more or less in a mentor role, because the students and professionals really have amazing ideas of how we can advance in aerospace. We look at all types of flying systems. We looked at how we can put bases on the moon, also talk about potential space launch systems learning from students and professionals who are actually doing the research for NASA and also commercial space agencies. And I'm also involved in the community. I've been doing that ever since I graduated from college. And there's so many things I've done. I've done expanding your horizons. That's always been fun with middle school students. More recently, I've been involved with the Washington State Science and Engineering Fair. I've always wanted to do this, but I always had some type of conflict that prevented me from meeting it. But thanks to the pandemic, it became a virtual Zoom event. And what was so fulfilling is listening to the students who had to all of a sudden adapt their projects to not being in the classroom, but they still had to complete their project. What I learned from those students as a judge was how resilient they were, how adaptable they were. And they were completely confident in their presentations. I'm going into my third year with the science fair as a judge. I totally enjoyed it. But I think it all boils down to my basic philosophy. Seeing other people succeed helps you succeed as well. That is a wonderful philosophy. And it's interesting, Linda, to hear you discuss all of your activities and all of your involvement. It might be surprising to realize that for a while after you graduated from Howard and you moved to the West Coast, that you actually had lost touch with SWE. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you came back, what brought you back, perhaps who brought you back? Well, I did a cross-country relocation after college. I lived in Washington, D.C., and I moved directly to Washington State. And this was before the internet. So the only thing I had was hoping the mail caught up with me where I moved. I didn't totally forget engineering because I did some volunteer engineering projects, but not associated with my company and also helping some friends who were engineers. I got laid off after my first job and decided, well, you know, I'll go back to school. I'll take some classes at University of Washington. So I did that, did some odd jobs, and I resumed some of my amateur music pursuits. So I got a job at Boeing maybe about 18 months after that, 1983. And I really got involved in a number of things. I met my husband. He talked me into scuba diving in the frigid Northwest, but we wear dry suits. 
And the scenery underwater is just amazing. I was involved in a number of musical ensembles on clarinet and bass clarinet. So I was having a lot of fun. I'm going to rehearsals three or four nights a week. So where do I squeeze in a sweet meeting? However, um, Vi Brown, who I met as a chemical engineering student, we stayed in contact after graduation. And she kept asking me, was I interested in getting involved in SWE again? And I, I told her, I said, I'll think about it. And I eventually did find an opportunity to attend a SWE meeting that was very close to my house. And I joined SWE when I was about four months pregnant. And I thought, what did I get myself into? But I found a way to make that work. <laughs> You became very involved with SWE after re-engaging again. What have been some of the most fulfilling parts of being involved in the society? My most fulfilling part is helping people to enjoy the possibilities of participating in SWE. I've talked a lot of people into joining SWE, and I think one was also on a previous podcast, uh, Miss Deborah Coleman. So she was one of the people I talked into. Also, within Boeing, I started a post-conference webinar with some individuals. It was a condition of a conference attendance grant that I had received from Boeing and our engineering union. And it was so successful that it still continues today. I felt that giving that information to people help people to understand, hey, there is more to Sweden than going to a section meeting. You can go to a conference and meet women from all over the world to see what they're doing as engineers. And I've also offered this as a best practice. I also engaged with region conferences. First, as a member, I would write my own presentations. And then when I was a region governor, helping the sections create their region conference packages. And that was so much fun to help them find the possibilities. And we became very successful in growing our conference attendance base. So those are the things that I enjoyed the most. And I think it was just meeting the people, understanding their needs, helping them with possibilities. And I think you've extended that sense of possibility beyond professional practicing engineers to outreach to the potential next generation of engineers, which makes total sense when you realize considering outreach is part of the SWE mission. And naturally then it would follow that your dedication to the SWE mission would extend into the community. I know that you were active at your son's school and that you supported various hands-on science activities. I'm wondering if you can tell us though, how you became a member of your school district's STEM advisory board And what is the function of this type of board? And what have you been able to do as a member of this board? The advisory board is part of the career and technical education component. And this is a federal program that is done in all 50 states. And what it does is helps teach specific career skills to students in middle school, high school, and post-secondary education. And STEM is just one of the 16 career clusters in career and technical education. The advisory boards are established by school districts, which consist of school administrators, teachers, business partners, and community members who are dedicated to help find opportunities. We meet several times a year, and we determine what our goals are for that year and what activities we want to accomplish. 
I learned about this program through work because typically Boeing has a volunteer network and they advertise for potential volunteer opportunities. And when I heard about this advisory board, recalling that I was involved in my son's um, STEM magnet program, I thought that would be a good transition to understand more about what type of education is being offered, what are the possibilities, and how can I help them in finding other opportunities? Like I'll share things from SWE, also from Engineers Week, and just if there's any information that comes out of the company, I can share with them. So I've been a member of that advisory board for about five years. And it's been amazing, the people that I've met and the types of jobs that they do. One of the more compelling challenges we have is also helping people to understand that a college degree is not necessarily the goal. We can also highlight vocational education with trades that pay handsome salaries, showing students that, yes, they're capable of having a sustainable living, even without a post-secondary degree. I'm wondering if you could share some of the memorable stories that you have from working with these uh, students. So I'll start with my volunteering with um, Expanding Your Horizons. That's the program where people create workshops to middle school students. And I had one which I thought was fairly basic. It was showing how you could use non-toxic cleaners to clean metals and I used the basics of citrus fruits and salt to clean copper pennies. So I talked to a friend of mine. I said, you know, I'm trying to find a title for this and I need to solicit your children's advice. I said, what can they come up with a title for it? And they said, why don't you use this cleaners you can eat? That was something where I always had a capacity attendance because they want to know what can I eat that I can actually clean things with? I think. The last workshop of one session, the students noticed that I had bags of fruit left in my briefcase and my cart. And they said, do you have any leftover fruit that we can eat? And I said, of course. So I handed over the bags of lemons, oranges, limes, and grapefruit, and they readily took them. And I had a lighter load to take home. Also, I mentioned the science fair, watching the students' science projects just awesome. The things that students do. I think that one of my favorites was a a young lady who taught her fish tricks and she won (laughs) awards for that. (laughs) Just to listen to her, I was just like totally amazed. And this was like, I think she may have been a first grader. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even teach my bird any tricks. And she's got a fish that she has trained. And also going into the schools, SWE has the Certificate of Merit program. And I enjoy going to the schools and making their presentations because the students are so appreciative of receiving that recognition. That's one of the things I do encourage SWE members to do is go out into the community and meet these students and show them the possibilities because they're so appreciative. They enjoy that we take an interest in them. I feel fulfilled knowing that I gave that student a moment of glory. Linda, I think those are such wonderful stories and wonderful memories. Um, Just the students' enthusiasm, knowing that you made an impact, that has to be just stellar. But another part of you is the enjoyment of self-expression through music. And because you play the soprano and the bass clarinet and you've performed 
with various orchestras. I wonder what happened during COVID and how did you keep your love of musical performance alive? Well, looking back a couple of years ago, my last concert was in February, 2020. And in March, I had two concerts planned, but my last rehearsal was on March the 3rd. Before the pandemic, I was playing in a concert band uh, and a wind ensemble, which is slightly smaller than a band, a clarinet choir and an orchestra. And all that stopped with the pandemic. I was disappointed, but not dissuaded. Though I am also reluctant to resume business as usual today because I care for relatives that have medical high risk issues. Being quarantined in my home was not such a bad thing after all. What I did instead was practice. I have a music library and I just practice at home. I would pretend to march around the house. And later I discovered play along music from a group called the International Music Archives. So I had people that I could play with at any time. In the pandemic was not that bad because I had just retired a couple of months prior. And I found I now had time to do the things that I never found the time to do when I was working and involved with music and also my other activities. So I bird watched from my backyard. I practiced photography to capture birds in flight at our feeders. We have Anna's hummingbirds that stay in the Pacific Northwest year round. So my husband and I have feeders that we frequently fill with nectar to attract hummingbirds. And sometimes I can get close enough to take a really good shot at them. During the spring and summer, I have a small garden that I have fuchsia baskets and other flowers to attract hummingbirds, bees, and butterflies. I felt quite content with that pandemic life. And it fit right in with retirement. But yes, the music, I do miss playing with my friends. I did not get involved with the online because my bird likes to sing. So I couldn't find a soundproof room. That <laughs> He's a green cheek conjurer and he does react to sound. So I decided I won't get involved in too many recordings, too many cuts. Uh, my parents had one of those. They're loud. <laughs> yeah. When I listen to your story, it just sounds like you had an incredibly full plate between work and between your leadership positions and your volunteerism and SWE and Nesby and then, you know, volunteering in the community. So I'm wondering how you prioritized your time and your energies and how did you decide what was important and what things you could set aside? Sure, that's an excellent question. Yes, there were times where people would look at me and said I was overextended with commitments. And to some extent, that was true. But I also saw what I could choose to expose. I don't hesitate to decline an invitation when it's not fitting in with my personal and professional values or my schedule. And even better, I can recommend other people who might be able to volunteer instead. When I started graduate school at University of Southern California, and Missouri Science and Technology University, my son was a toddler and I was very protective of my work-life balance. So it was not difficult for me to say, no, I can't do that right now because I'm working full-time and going to school part-time. And my friends were understanding about my situation because quite a few people were also doing the same program. 
But once I graduated, you know, the offers to come play with another group came back. Also, I found a few more volunteer opportunities, but I tried to mesh them in with the family aspects. So it's not, I kept them involved because I would take them to regional conferences or we would go to science fairs or just go see sciencey things, uh, the engineering fair. So my son really enjoyed those opportunities. And then I took another sweetcation after finishing my term on the board of directors, because this time my son was about to enter high school and I wanted to spend time with him because I anticipated that he probably would not be living at home much longer. So I wanted to enjoy that time. So that's why I got involved with SWE maybe after he graduated about six years ago. I'm in awe of you going to graduate school with a toddler. (laughs) I'm just totally in awe of that. And I can see why it was so important that you be very selective about where you chose to spend your time and your energy. When I was in graduate school, the courses were either live or recorded. So I had the option of taking the class live, or if I had to, I could wait a couple of days and look at it. Since it was on the computers, I could do it at home or I could do it at work. So that gave me another level of flexibility. I'll tell you one funny story. When I started graduate school in 2001, I was at work and I just took a break to do my homework. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm in in this building and I hear this rumbling sound. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that must be a big truck going behind our building. But all of a sudden, my monitor flipped on its side and realized we were in an earthquake. (laughs) So I ducked under the desk. Uh, The rumbling stopped after a few minutes. And then there was was the word to evacuate. But I made one cardinal error. I had my homework on that computer. (laughs) When I got home, I called my professor up and said, you know what, Mike, I said, you know, there's been an earthquake in uh, Seattle and my homework assignment is on my computer. I'm not sure when I'll get back to it. And he said, not to worry, he would accept it when I turned it in. Through those years, I spent time with my son and I would go to bed with him at bedtime, like eight or nine o'clock. And then I would wake up later that night and study for a few more hours and then go back to bed just to catch another few hours of sleep. I didn't do that every day, but there were some days I did that. But I always try to make time and make sure that I also exercise self-care. That's And that's very important no matter what you do in life is your health is first. Without health, you have no economy. That's absolutely true. I guess from all of your experiences, I'm wondering if you have any other insights that might be helpful to share with our listeners, like any other lessons learned on maybe how to pick a battle or how to cope with difficult situations. Sure. You know, this is one thing I've heard from numerous presenters at SWE conferences is the value of community and having people to support you. And I recommend that people who feel alone try to reach out and surround yourself with people who are vested in your success. Identify people who could be your advocates and stay away from those that can't advocate from you. And then at the same time, give others behind you a hand so that they can be confident and you can reap confidence knowing that you have helped them. In picking your battles, it's part of that self-care aspect. How do you want to feel after that battle is over? If it's not going to feel good to you, 
mentally or physically, then it may not be a good battle to fight. Also have some type of sounding board, someone to talk to, a trusted friend, a spouse, a mentor, find someone that you can have that conversation with. Journaling is also something that I do is writing and capturing my thoughts. And I use multiple media for journaling. I do it on my computer or I I also carry a book that I write in. So I can just write out my thoughts and think of what's going to be the potential impact of some of the decisions I've made. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Sure. Um, There's one more thing I wanted to talk to, and that's the imposter syndrome. I still recover from it. And going back to my previous thought was to overcome those feelings of inadequacy is to have that support network to help build you up and feel confident. And I did find that through Sweet and many coworkers. I mean, some examples I've had was even having the courage to apply for graduate school. It took me years to want to do that uh, because I had this fear of failure and graduate school was just beyond me, even though deep down inside, I did want to have another degree before I finished my career. And I took that chance and University of Southern California was very helpful. They said, you can take four courses and see if you like it and then you can apply. And I did very well. I was excited. And I decided, oh, I'm going to go ahead and finish this master's degree program. Once I graduated, I felt, wow, I've learned so much. And this is going to help me with my job. It really did beyond my comprehension. And I still use those tools even outside work today. And I think the other imposter syndrome issue I had was applying for awards. At one time, I would apply for awards and not win at all. And I thought, well, hmm. There's something definitely missing here. I saw feedback and sometimes the feedback was good and sometimes it left me with more questions. And I mentioned my applying to the technical fellowship, how I did drop out one time and then I did go to the interview stage but didn't make it. And then I said, well, I'm going to try again. And I think persistence and having people keep me accountable for that persistence really helped. People would not let me give up. And after I made the fellowship, then people said, you need to apply for these awards. And I was like, well, can I really be considered for those awards? So what happened was there was a a local award from the Puget Sound Engineering Council for Industry Engineer of the Year, and it's presented around Engineers Week. It is a prestigious award. And one of the previous winners was Alan Mulally, who was once head of Boeing Commercial Airplanes and later CEO of the Ford Motor Company. By the time I applied, I was already in the fellowship and I had a wealth of experiences and accomplishments to show for it. In the past, I was nominating other people for awards because some people, I knew them so well that writing their applications was just so natural, but I was still uncertain. But I decided, why not apply? I can still progress with my career if I didn't. And 10 years ago, I got that award. That was a big thrill. From there, I was encouraged by my sweet friends to apply for sweet fellow and other awards. And every time I applied for an award because I wrote an incredible application with help from the company. And I used that as a template to apply for other awards. And usually it was a first time success and definitely a confidence boost, if anything.
So now I'm helping others with application preparation because I judge applications on an annual basis. I am also currently offering to review sweet individual award packages for the technical path affinity group. Because once again, I find joy in seeing others succeed and I want to give them every opportunity possible to receive that recognition. And it sounds like all your efforts to support other people have come back to you as well. Uh, That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Linda, for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. And I really enjoy sharing my story with you and the SWE community. I have really enjoyed our conversation. And on behalf of myself, Anne, Linda, and everyone else at SWE, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to leave us a review and share this episode with your social network. Thanks for listening.